Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure you automatically hear about each episode, sign up for our RSS feed either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio. Um, or actually any of your podcasts, or however you are accessing this show, you can uh, sign up for an RSSC. Today's show will be about post-adoption depression. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Farron Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, check out the new Farron Fertility website, which is farronfertility.com. Hey, and we could also use your help. The single most important thing you can do to help us out is to rate this podcast on iTunes. So if you've got iTunes on your computer or your phone, just type in the words creating a family and then rate it. And if you're feeling particularly generous, if you'll just take an extra minute and write up a review or a comment, that would just be great. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And one recent one that you might find interesting um, is the one that we posted today, which is uh, asking about it's about a specific Father's Day card, which I have a picture of on the site. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are finding it offensive to adoption. Basically, we're kind of exploring in the blog and especially in the comments the fine line between being offensive and, and, and us overreacting. Join in and add, add your thoughts on whether this card crosses that line to offensive at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Children's Connection. They have offices, or an adoption agency, I should say, with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support. We also have... Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina and adoption programs throughout the world and a domestic infant program and, of course, their Snowflakes Embryo Donation Embryo Adoption Program. Creating a Family, as you just heard, is a nonprofit. One of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors. So if you're looking for an adoption agency or an adoption attorney or an adoption therapist or an infertility clinic, please make your first stop the Creating a Family databases on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, humanitarian aid, just a host of criteria that we think are important. And we thank you. 
Today's Creating a Family show will be talking about post-adoption depression, causes and prevention. I'll be interviewing Dr. Jane Aronson. Post-adoption depression is surprisingly common and seldom talked about. After all, you've tried so hard to become a parent, many adoptive parents are ashamed to admit that they're struggling. Dr. Aronson is a board-certified general pediatrician and pediatric infectious disease specialist and adoption medicine specialist for the past 12 years. She's a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the Weill Cornell Medical College of Cornell University, and she is founder and chief executive of Worldwide Orphans Foundation. She is the mom of three kids through domestic and international adoption. And if that's not enough, Dr. Aronson is also the author of a new book, Carried in Our Hearts, The Gifts of Adoption, Inspiring Stories of Families Created Across Continents. Welcome back, Welcome back, I should say, Dr. Aronson, to Creating a Family. Hi, thanks, Dawn. It's very nice to be here. Um, I wanted to just make a correction on the bio there. I don't know when you when that came through, but I've been doing adoption medicine for 25 years. Oh, you know what? I got that off of the, which we're going to give this website out a couple of times. The I believe I got that from, but thank you for correcting. I think I got it from the uh, Worldwide Orphans Foundation site, but I could be wrong. I'm just telling you that for um, your record. That's good. Uh, if, they, if, yeah, they, so, yeah, if my own shop has it wrong, I better tell them. Right? Oh, you know what? Your website is great. It has tons of information. One mistake is allowed. But, yeah, you may want to correct it. And I may be wrong, let's be honest. I want to start by telling you how much I have enjoyed uh, the new book, Carried in Our Hearts. It is simply... It is a delightful book. It is uh, a delight. We're going to be adding it uh, today, I hope, uh, to our – we have a list of fun and inspirational reads, and I'm going to put it right at the top because I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, It's – just so that our audience knows, it's it's a group of essays by uh, families and people who have adopted both in the U.S. and abroad, and it's just – it's – it's wonderful. So uh, uh, we'll give you the re- – you can obviously get it at your local bookstore or Amazon or wherever. And it, the title is Carried in Our Hearts, The Gift of Adoption. It's great. But now today we're going to be talking about a different topic, which is post-adoption depression. So let's start. How do you how do you define what post-adoption depression is? And, and how does that differ from just kind of a general state of being – overwhelmed following the addition of a child into the family, regardless of whether that kiddo came to us through adoption or birth? Um, well, I think I'm, you know, very uh, flexible uh, in the way I look at feelings to start with. So uh, if if people create a family, whether it's birth or adoption, and they're feeling sad, okay, this is both parents, not just the let's separate out postpartum blues, which is a a physiologic phenomenon that occurs due to uh, the uh, imbalance of hormones from pregnancy and delivery, uh, which has distinctive physiologic component to it. But I would say that even without the physiologic piece, that frequently people have a mismatch of expectations after they go from being a single person to being a person with a child or children. And, And frequently... In an adoption setting, there can be more than one children, one more than one child that ends up coming into the home at the same time. So I'm very flexible about how I describe uh, this particular entity, which, I, which you've introduced as post-adoption depression, and I would say that it could be reviewed and be said to be post-adoption blues. It could be called post-adoption sadness. 
you know, it could be called a lot of things, but I would say that, you know, we don't have actual, you know, DSM-10 criteria. In fact, people are arguing back and forth now about, you know, the utility of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for um, an international classification for psychiatric disorders. And I don't mean for people to walk away from the program and think that we're talking about, you know, a, a classifiable categorical diagnosis here. Now, this is more of a philosophical discussion we're having because we don't have criteria at this point. But I have my own clinical criteria that I've used in the 25-plus years that I've been doing adoption medicine and, frankly, that I've been in pediatric, a pediatrician. I've been in medicine 31 years, and I would say to you that I, I think that uh, most people feel some sort of component of sadness and loss after they deliver a baby or after they adopt, because we're talking about a mismatch of expectations. So it depends on where you want to go with that. So if you have struggled, as we all do in through an adoption process, and you've had to travel far and wide and spend a fair amount of money and been, frankly, fairly abused by bureaucratic practices, <laughs> by the time you get your child and then bring your child home, and experience the transition of the actual child coming into your family, there have been a host of factors that have nothing to do necessarily with the actual parenting piece that sets you up for a tremendous amount of, of, of hurt feelings and abused fe- feelings of abuse, frankly. Yeah, and we're going to gonna, you- we're gonna dive into those those specific factors in just a minute. Let me ask this question that we've received from Tracy. She says, "I'm curious as to how soon after adoption this type of depression can appear. Does it happen right away, or can it come along several months down the road?" It can come along right away, or go, or happen months down the road, or even years. People, <clears throat> when you look at the map of this and you you graph it. Uh, the one, I think the one point I want to, uh, there'll be several points that I want to drive home for treatment and prevention, which you brought up right away when you introduced the topic. Number one, it has serious, serious uh, effects on the person who feels the feelings of sadness and loss after the adoption, and it has a lot of ramifications, intensely dangerous ramifications for the child or children who've been adopted. And those ramifications yeah. clearly have to do with what I call parent attachment disorder. Which yeah, I really was going to ask you about that, because I've, I've actually not heard that term. So what is parent attachment I think disorder? I think I actually created that. I'm going to, I mean, there's many things that I'm derivative about, because, you know, there's so much that's come before me. But I actually coined that phrase, parent attachment disorder. I love, let me tell you, I love that phrase. And, and, and the reason I love it is it's one of our recurring themes here is to, it, I, I, my shorthand is attachment is a two-way street. We focus a lot on, uh, uh, I think all adoption educators do, on uh, how we can help our child attach to us. But we over, uh, parents often overlook the fact that they also need to attach to their child. So I actually love the term. But I, I'm giving you credit. I didn't realize you had invented it. But now yep. you can. Uh, yeah. So let's right, go back well. to this, this lovely woman's question about the the actual sequence is very important because it helps us to be able to counsel people Okay. And to prevent it from happening. So 
if you're feeling the, the most important part of helping prevent post-adoption depression is to query the individual, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a psychologist, social worker who has done the home study, I think one of the most important parts of the process is to really be able to touch base with a clinical health, a mental health or health provider who can actually assay, how are you feeling? You know, what's happening for you? Are you happy on a scale of 1 to 10? You know, do a stress assessment to see how stressed a person is. Are they sleeping? Are they eating? Are they overeating, undereating? Are they seeing people in social interactions? Do they find themselves, excuse me, being irritable or edgy? And are they able to go back to work and be productive? Can they relate to their partner if they're married appropriately? Are they relating to the other children in the family comfortably? And and frankly, (coughs) the final question would be, (coughs) excuse me, are they able to comfortably take the new child in and start to feel affection and love and commitment? So that's the, the kind of questionnaire that I devised, actually, for my initial evaluation in the office. I wrote that up. I reported it in my notes. And I never, not once, did I not enter into this discussion with a newly adopted family. Mm-hmm. And some families, obviously, you know, respond in a very, you know, difficult, different way, right? So that you can ask the question, but then what do you do with the responses? So a lot of people have been in denial. And that's very a strong process in adoption because, you know, <clears throat> as you st- talked about before we started, you know, your organization does a lot of education around fertility. So people mm-hmm. who come from that context uh, may not have done a lot of psychological work to prepare themselves for adoption and parenting. Because well, that's we sure a, hope that that's right? not the case. But you know what we well, find. Well, but it happens. It's such a grueling process to it is. conceive and, a child and, in many ways, right? It absolutely, and there's not a lot of easily obtainable, uh, good quality adoption education affordable. So I mean, all of that comes into play. And quite frankly, from a, a domestic adoption standpoint, uh, we're light years ahead in the international area than we are in the domestic adoption because it is possible to adopt in domestically and get zero. Um, adoption, pre-adoption education, believe it or not, depending on the state and the agency you use. So yeah. absolutely, you're you're right. So you're saying that it can happen um, either right away, and, and your your questionnaire is is asked at the first meeting, um, and that's uh, if a parent and then has continue to, to ask. Right. I mean, well, yeah, because uh, it could also uh, uh, what I see. Um, in talking with families is usually right away, families are still on that euphoric high of just having accomplished this major monumental task, but it's when the uh, when it's no longer new that uh, often and the realization of, of the mismatched expectations uh, hit, which is uh, often uh, months down the road. Uh, so, yeah, I can definitely, so from Tracy's question, it can be, hmm, so going, uh, it could be any, all of the above. Uh, it can, it can be, um, and so the depression itself can interfere, as you're saying, with a parent's ability to attach to the child. Yep. Well, that's okay. the most. That's the saddest part of this whole story. That 
<clears throat> it's hard enough for the parent to, um, you know, to be sad after, you know, all that time waiting and the buildup and the excitement and then to feel a sense of loss or sadness <clears throat> makes it very difficult. So there's a tendency to want to hide those feelings and oh, then yeah. there's conflict. So there's sad feelings. Then what happens is you can't really focus on the child and the child has many, many, many demands. If it's an infant, toddler, preschool, school age kid, this is a kid who has to learn socialization and intimacy. So you're having trouble <clears throat> with intimacy, essentially. You're not able to provide unconditional love. And there you are with a child whose needs are really all about unconditional love and intimacy because if they've been institutionalized, they're not going to really understand anything about unconditional love or intimacy. So then the child begins to feel rejected and then what happens is the child then rejects the parent. Or it can really start where the child is rejecting the parent, as in many cases when the transition of adoption occurs. Many children, especially when they're older, are not going to take the parent in as a love object because they're very afraid, there are language issues, and as I mentioned, there's a lack of understanding of what's expected emotionally and an underdevelopment of emotional tools. So then the child is defended and distant to begin with. And then the parent is feeling hurt and may take that uh, lack of ability for the child to be able to show love and affection. The parent can en end up feeling rejected and then reject the child. So it's a chicken or egg. Yeah, and, and, it, it, sounds like and it becomes a vicious cycle. And then you have a situation where the child feels completely rejected and is behaviorally in a, uh, in a world where they are become they become completely behaviorally decompensated. So kids can go into tantrums, they can stop eating themselves or have odd eating behaviors, and they can actually <clears throat> display a lot of the characteristics of reactive attachment disorder that may be exacerbated so <clears throat> by the post adoption depression and the parent attachment disorder. So it's very hard if you look at all of these confounding variables to tease out what came first, what came second. But it's exactly. a cascade yeah. of events, for sure. And yeah, That's the perfect you, way to say it, yeah. A cascade. And, you know, it's dominoes fall, and then you have yourself a situation where you have a kid who was at risk to begin with who's clearly now compromised emotionally and psychologically. Yeah. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about post-adoption depression. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at the top left corner of any page of creatingafamily.org, or if you want, you can just send us an email and ask us to add you, and we'll do it. That email is info at creatingafamily.org. Dr. Aronson, so, how... Helen, I wanted to just finish up some idea here, which I think is really important, and that is the universality of parent attachment disorder. It's I was really just going to ask you about that. How common is this? You know, I don't have any data, but I'm going to tell you from my clinical work in the office, I don't think I had any parents who didn't have a mismatch of expectations, which made them predisposed to these issues, depression and attachment issues. And I would say across the board, especially for adoption, 
that I'm going to say to you close to 75 or 85 percent of my clients had some form of this. And when you questioned them, they really were grateful to be questioned, by the way. But I would want to point out the universality of parent attachment disorder as it separates from post-adoption depression. Because there's really a, a very important distinction here, and that is that in my practice of pediatrics and medicine in general, I saw many clients who were birth children. I spent, you know, decades taking care of children who were born to parents and were parented by those birth parents. And, you know, I saw a lot of parent attachment disorder, a lot. I saw so a lot of people. So you're saying that it's, it's it, it, do you think it is more common with adoption? I would say I, w- I would say it is more common with adoption. And I certainly would say we can actually look at different categories of family types. I think it's more common with single parents, head of households. I think it's more common in foster care families, whether kinship or, you know, or community foster care. I think it's more common in minority groups where there may be poverty associated and drugs and alcohol, parents who are affected by substance abuse, alcoholism. I think it's more common. I think it's more common in families where there's more than one child, if there's a large family with limited resources. So it's a really fantastic topic, which I, you know, I feel like we likely could write a book about parent attachment disorder, and I think it's described, actually, uh, in many ways, it's been described in very old literature, mm-hmm. and literature that's about compromised families and dysfunctional families and high-risk families. Do you see it more likely, uh, more common in uh, mothers or fathers? And, and I'm not talking. Let's shift back to uh, post. It's the uh, it's the chicken and egg thing between depression and mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, attachment, attachment parental attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking sp- just specific to the, the post adoption depression. Um, do you see it more common in mothers or fathers? Yeah, I think it's more common in mothers, and I think that's, um, you know, sort of the old-fashioned uh, common way that we look at families, that women, you know, are much more invested in um, in attaching and bonding to their children. Men are more relaxed. There's not that much, you know, they're not as fearful about the attachment. They're not counting on it. It comes more naturally in that way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Men may be afraid of a baby in the beginning and may not be that interactive, but mm-hmm. they're more relaxed. They're not as readily rejected in their mind. I think that, don't you think it has something to do with the 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 expectation? Again, that word expectation or the, the expectation of what the dad was expecting. Uh, well, that's a redundant statement, but what the father comes into the the adoption or uh, parenting expecting, and what a mom comes in, a mom is thinking in terms of of, of fulfilling emotional needs and to and from both receiving as well as giving, and and may have more vested in having that intense bond, uh, and yep. be less patient when they don't have it immediately. Yeah, I think so, and I think there's a lot of societal pressure on women. Uh, to uh, to to be mothers, to be the best mother, you yeah. see that in breastfeeding. Lots of women who end up um, not breastfeeding suffer terrible sadness, depression, upset, anger, uh, guilt, mm-hmm. because they're they're feeling as if they're expected to do something and they didn't achieve that expectation, right. and they're being judged that they're not good mothers because they didn't breastfeed. Right. 
Yeah. And so, we know, I interestingly, think- we have a lot of resources on breastfeeding and adoption. And, and I, I even hear from women who, and, who have adopted who are feeling intense disappointment that they are unable to breastfeed, even though, in fact, I've, almost, I've, 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 I've written essays on this, the cult of, of breastfeeding, and it, it, it has passed over even to the adoptive world now. And I worry a little about that. I worry because we, I think, have the most resources available online, or anywhere, actually, on breastfeeding, and, and probably... it wasn't our intent to, to create right. the expectation. Uh, it was simply to provide information for those who wanted to give it a try, but uh, anyway. Right, but people don't have, like you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, all of this is service provider dependent. Who's going to be there for people? This is worldwide, by the way, and this is why I think my perspective working in the international scene um, as the CEO and of Worldwide Orphans, where I get to be uh, working in orphanages and working with kids who are at risk, vulnerable, and in the streets, etc. Um, we're looking at a world picture of of people who really don't have access to good social service infrastructure. All over the world, anyone who's marginalized, poor, dysfunctional, poor educational, poor educational background, um, Anyone who doesn't have access to resources is going to end up not being able to talk about their feelings. The first thing that doesn't happen, it's really sad when you think about I just was listening to NPR, by the way, it's an incredible interview of a, a guy who wrote a book about drug addiction and about decriminalization of drugs, of, uh, of, drugs, of, of addiction, of, sorry, of addicts. And what, what struck me about the, the book and the interview was that you know, there's so many old ways that we think about things, and we've really done a disservice. It's a vicious cycle for minorities uh, who can end up with substance abuse issues, and then they end up, you know, never achieving independence or success because we've, we've made judgments and punishments that are ridiculous, and we don't provide support services to help people be able to, um, in, you know, efficiently and um, inexpensively mm-hmm. pro- you know, get that kind of uh, behavioral health service. We're moved away from mental health as an expression and moved into this area of behavioral health support. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of families who have a home study done, and the, the home study is really a pretty perfunctory tool, as you well know. Um, it follows a for, it's very formulaic. It does the best it can do to make sure people have two eyes and a nose. But I, I don't know if it does much more. And one of the things it does poorly is because it's such a um, idiosyncratic structure where the agency and the state have provided an opportunity for you to have a home study that tells you whether you're a good parent or not, right, or you're a good candidate to be a parent, but then the home study person, that social worker really isn't going to be the person you're going to go and talk to because you're afraid of what that might turn into. So there's really no good model and I agree, this happens constantly. I've had literally hundreds and hundreds of families who will be in trouble, they'll feel sad, they'll feel upset, they need service. And I used to say early on, call your social worker. You went to this agency, the lovely person, and they'd say, no, I'm not going there. She's the one that did my home study, and I don't want them to know and take my kid away to make judgments. So it's not available to people. Where do they go? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, you know, it's a very, it, well, yeah, and it's, and 
good agencies do their best to try to, even before the child comes home, uh, prepare families that this may happen. I want to go back and talk uh, briefly about some of the risk factors uh, in either the adoptive parents or the adoption situations, which may up the odds that a parent uh, can become depressed after adopting. You've mentioned single parents. Uh, yep. And you, and in general, you talked about stressed families, either stressed in any number of ways, stressed because of poverty, stressed because of abuse, uh, uh, substance abuse. Um, but anyway, so stressed financially, economically stressed is a big reason. Yeah, yep, because it's poverty, right? You know, yep. pay a lot of money for the adoption, and then they're really, you know, uh, they're maxed out on their credit cards, and they don't have financial right. resources. Right, and so exactly, so. Just stress in general interferes with our ability to relax and be patient with the bonding process and and, uh, and can add to our uh, mismatch of expectations, which will lead uh, or could lead to depression. What about age of the child at adoption? Have you seen yep. that? Oh, yeah, that that's is a very a good. Age of the child at adoption and also age of parents. I Ooh, think I want to talk to parents first. I think one of the biggest issues we have for post-adoption depression and parent attachment disorder is older parents frequently, uh, you know, will adopt. Uh, they may be several marriages or late marriage or um, people have been divorced or remarried, whatever. Older parents who are in their 40s and 50s parenting may have limited understanding of child development and may have less patience, especially a, a middle-aged person adopting a toddler. That's a real mismatch, and I'll tell you how that sets itself up for uh, a PAD and uh, <clears throat> uh, whether it's the depression or the attachment disorder, and that is that you'll end up with a parent who's really having their own conflict, middle li- midlife crisis, and at the at same time dealing with a toddler or preschool-age child who's individuating and who's back and forth with being close and far. And that is a setup for disaster because, you know, we all, if we've all remembered our toddler experience, and I loved my toddler experience. I I sort of admired my youngest son when he became, you know, 18 months, two, and three, because I I found his desire for independence and competency fascinating and funny. And I enjoyed it, and it made me love him more deeply. Whereas, obviously, in my office as a clinician, I would have a lot of uh, conflict in my office when parents would come in to discuss terrible twos, terrible threes, whatever you want to call it, or egocentric fours. People were, you know, short on patience, if you will. So older parents uh, may not have a good sense of early childhood development and may be more in the throes of their own midlife crisis while their child is trying to separate, and no one... No one, I have to tell you, um, can can imagine the kind of conflict that can exist between a toddler and a 40-year-old. Not easy. And then on top of this, I would say that um, uh, the age of of the child is exquisitely important, particularly in, in the last 20 years, has been more and more sibling group adoption and mm-hmm. also older children from, you know, very traumatic backgrounds, whether they've been institutionalized for long periods of time or recently institutionalized because of abandonment or relinquishment um, due to the many reasons that occur, right? Uh, Disease, Mm -hmm. war, conflict, uh, disaster, poverty, God knows what, political unrest. So 
Then you have the problem of an older child who lived with their family, perhaps, and experienced attachment, culturally congruent attachment, where they clearly were speaking the language with parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and were truly attached and comfortable in their culture, and then a disaster comes and there's separation and loss, and then they're adopted by perhaps a single woman or a single man who might be older. I mean, you know, we can go back and forth with all the permutations and combinations of what can happen here. But older child adoption is the most challenging of all of the categories of adoption, especially and, if the child's been institutionalized. Do you um, categorize older child uh, as a child over toddlerhood or over I'd the age of school age kids. I mean, I adopted a six-year-old from Ethiopia so and an infant from Vietnam. So I would, you know, categorize an older child as a school-age child. Okay. Gotcha. What about parents? Yeah. What about parents who come uh, to adoption from experiencing the losses associated with infertility? Not everybody does, but a lot of people um, move to adoption from having first experienced infertility, uh, age-related or not. Uh, so, uh, have you seen that that uh, unresolved, although I, don't, I just like that term because I'm not sure resolution is, is No, the it's good, unresolved. Way. You know, that's the nature of the organization, resolve, right? Mm-hmm. That's why they yeah, called it resolve. They're resolved yeah. to have a baby, but as a result of the fertility issues, there's a lack of resolution of feelings of loss. Mm-hmm. So um, coming, at, coming at adoption from the losses of infertility, from your experience and what you've read and seen <clears throat> in your practice, do you see that that is in itself a risk factor, or uh, is it a fairly minor one, if, it, if one at all? It's not minor at all. It's major. In fact, you know, my experience has been in the New York area, but we, we thank God we have many social workers who were adoptive parents themselves who went into a specialty of uh, fertility support where they literally spent their professional career seeing families that were um, having trouble segueing into um, a comfortable and accepting role as a parent who had losses through fertility and was now uh, eagerly accepting the new role of being a parent adopting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's uh, an enormous issue, and I think that it's kept um, in a place of denial for the most part. I think people have their losses, They now, because adoption has changed so much and there's so many fewer children available for adoption internationally, you've got people doing fertility, surrogacy, you name the kind of fertility work they're doing at the same time that they're applying for both domestic and international adoption. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of cranked up desperation that is at high gear and, and highly stressful and I don't think anyone's taking the time out to go to a counselor to deal with those stresses. I mean, compared to the numbers of people who are engaged in it. Um, so I would say that in the New York area, there are many psychologists and social workers who spent their whole careers helping families through these very trying and challenging stresses. And, and let me just say now that Creating a Family has resources for helping you find a therapist that is knowledgeable about uh, 
infertility as well as uh, we have resources on how to find a therapist that can help work with you on some of the issues surrounding adoption. You can find those. Go to our site, creatingafamily.org. The blue, go to the blue horizontal menu across the top of the site, hover over the word, well, for infertility, hover over the word infertility, click on resources, then go to how to find a therapist for adoption, do the same, hover over, click on resources, then go to how to find an adoption therapist. Yes. So let me point okay. out that, you know, with our discussion, which is certainly interesting and exciting, and I can, that both of us are enjoying it, the problem also lies in that, even if we get people to go for professional help, there are very few courses available um, in social work schools, both undergraduate and postgraduate, in adoption in general and then in dealing with the transition to creating a family that's successful, which would be post-adoption. The post-adoption mm-hmm. services are really quite limited, and post-adoption education is limited, so there's really not much going on uh, lecture-wise in the area of post-adoption depression and parent attachment disorder. You know, I I wholeheartedly agree, and it's interesting um, being in the uh, education uh, adoption education world. Uh, we are mandated, at least by some states, and and then with international adoption, we are mandated to provide education. But after adoption, there is after the adoption is complete. Um, there is just a dearth of resources, and quite frankly, with the exception of creating a family, there are some others out there as well. Uh, Case does some uh, good, uh, some great work as well. They've been on our show a number of times. Uh, so, you know, you are exactly right. And, and one of the things is that because there is a great deal of shame associated with post-adoption <coughs> depression, and that shame it's even more uh it's even astronomically more if if it's expressing itself and it often would in your failure to attach to your child i mean that's just one of the 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 uh, it's it's so much it's such a, a guilt-ridden situation it's just hard to it's it's hard to get over so if you're a parent and you know that you're first of all let's back up and say uh, I think that the notion of immediate attachment is a bit of a misnomer, and that may be one of the mismatched expectations. The parents go into it thinking on some level, even though they've heard, oh, you may not fall in love with your child immediately, the expectation in their heart is that they will. How long should a parent give themselves before they start worrying that they're not attaching to their child? If six months is the really the <clears throat> the major transition period I think for the uh, after the adoption where people would slowly move into, you know, the first couple of months would be the issues of sleep and eating and getting accustomed to the change in uh, in the constellation of characters in your family where you're just doing the physical adjustments. You know, mm-hmm. where, where is the child comfortable physically in your home? Uh, you know, what does sleeping look like? Is it going to work out in a crib or in a bed or on the floor? Um, and what are the eating habits like and what does socialization look like and how does the baby and child fit into the family in general and in the uh, extended family and then if the child uh, enters into the world of socialization and there's education challenges, all of that kind of falls into place in the first couple of months, first few months. And then while that's happening, I always tr- you know, counsel people that it's not about love. I always tell people that when you created a family, you're really a teacher. 
creating a family through adoption and you're taking care of a kid who may have been abandoned, relinquished, or an institution, your job is really to be a teacher. The more the more organized and the more teacher oriented you're you're going to be, the better off you'll be, and the less chance or risk you'll have of post adoption depression because you'll you'll uh, be much more aware of uh, of your expectations. You'll be able to examine them carefully and and uh, be able to you know. Uh, in a ta- it, taking an inventory on your behavior and your responses, so but but certainly by six months because the first six months are tough. There's so many logistics that have to change in a family, especially if you have other children at home, um, either adopted or birthed before. And I I can speak to this personally, even though I'm speaking to you pretty clinically about it. I I was really sad after my second adoption. The first one was a baby. And I was so excited and happy to have a baby. I had no sadness. I planned my life out perfectly. I only worked, full, you know, three full days during the week. I had a nanny to help, but I was really a primary parent in all ways. I even transitioned my two-and-a-half-year-old um, for six weeks to uh, to preschool by staying in the, you know, the living room at the preschool until he was ready. So I did a lot of things that I tell people to do. I was, I think I was a really good role model as a professional. But I think the second adoption was an older child, um, and that was, and that's after having the baby for four years. So, and it was out of birth order. So here you bring in a six-year-old, and you already have children at home who may be younger. I, I'm perfectly happy to tell you that I think it works fine, but it was a lot to handle. And he was a an Ethiopian boy who had had a family, lost his family, and then had been institutionalized for a year. So he went through the usual changes that kids go through with is a lot of sadness and fear and anxiety on it. And, and then he didn't learn English until probably within the first three months. That's sort of typical. And then he had no, he, you know, he really didn't have a good sense of English. In other words, he lost the Amharic in the first three months and substituted the Amharic with some perfunctory English, but his understanding of culture and and society was limited. So there he was in kindergarten, first in camp and then kindergarten, and, you know, it was really hard for him. He was exhausted mentally and physically um, from all of us talking English and from all of the activities and socialization. And so for the first six months, we were all in, in, in a flux. But I felt very sad because I felt like, oh, my God, you know, even though I knew up front what this looked like, I thought, did I do the right thing for my family? Was this the right choice for Ben? who had really lived a pretty a life of grace for the first four years, and was this right for my partner? And, um, and you know, I felt badly. I felt guilty and sad and bad, and I was somewhat distant from him at different points, and I watched myself. I watched myself be sad and depressed and blue, and I watched myself be disconnected, and I then, you know, made corrections, and I sought out counseling so I could, you know, have someone support me through those corrections. Mm-hmm. So I know how it is, what it looks like, and then I know what, how to you know, get the treatment for it. And the treatment is very successful. That's what's so wonderful about this. If you really just look at it up front and you see what it looks like and you own it instead of denying it like anything else, you have a good chance of making the proper correction so it doesn't have long-term effects. Um, okay, well that I'd like right to be in. able to talk a little bit to your clients about the depth of loss and abandonment that comes into play here, which we really haven't touched upon which is really, you know, how the kids feel when they come and what they come from. Is, it, would that be okay? I tell you what, let me ask a couple. We do, we've, we, um, we have many, many shows that we've done on uh, the depth, but I would love to uh, mine your expertise on that as well. Well, I just let want to get... make sure people understand that that's really 
so much at the heart of the difficulty and the challenge of the attachment disorder in the parent because the child's depth of, of loss is so deep <clears throat> that it becomes a, a, a wound that uh, is even deeper and harder to, uh, to manage. So yeah. that's enough. Let me uh, – absolutely. And uh, if anybody, we have uh, uh, quite extensive resources on exactly that on our site uh, under adoption resources, which I mentioned before. We have a, a question. Uh, we received a, an email question uh, asking, will post-adoption re- uh, depression resolve untreated? I assume it depends upon the person, as would any depressive episode, but I'm not sure if post-adoption depression is different. Thanks so much to your guest. Um, so let's talk about treatment for a uh, for a moment here. Uh, you said that you sought out counseling and that it was very effective. Uh, mm-hmm. I would assume that uh, treatment uh, would involve a counseling. Would it also, and that begs the question of what type of counselor? Does the counselor need specialized training? And no, I, I don't think so. I think that... Oh, you don't? <clears throat> okay, good. I mean, so no, I, I don't. I do not think that the, the counselor needs special... I think the, the counselor needs to be aware of this entity. But past that point, I don't think the person has to be an expert in post-adoption depression. I'm a, I believe in generalists. I believe in specialists as well, but I believe in generalists. I, I, I always have. I think there's really an important place for primary care, and I think it's important to stress that in a program like this because, you know, most of the access to care for behavioral support is a generalist. And I think really great generalists can handle any kind of crisis uh, because, you know, they have the, uh, the energy and the commitment to support the client. And if they need help, they can get supervision for pe- from people who have the expertise. And that's what okay. works really incredible for primary care. So in a case like this where you asked me about, you know, this woman asked, can you uh, move out of a post-adoption depression without treatment, I think, uh, yes, of course you can. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, people are, are okay. self-correctors. There are a lot, there's so much awareness. People are, you know, are, there's a lot of good common sense out there, and I'm going to vote for common sense here. Lots of people recognize when they're blue under many circumstances, and they self-correct. Um, but if it's more, but if it interferes with sleep, eating, and behavior, and work, and function, then you know clearly you need to have a professional intercede because then it's affected uh, you in a more deep way, and it has uh, secondary effects on the behavior of all those around you. And uh, let me uh, uh, put in a plug for support groups here. Uh, I think that uh, in person, and and they're oftentimes hard to find unless you do live in a larger, one of the larger metropolitan areas of the U.S., Uh, and if not um, uh, in person, then online support groups really can play a function. Now, if it's extreme, as you just mentioned, and it's interfering with your uh, functioning and, and productivity and uh, and it's going on for a long period of time, then that's another issue. But otherwise, one of the first things to do is, is get yourself to an in-person or and sign up for some online support groups. Creating a Family has a great one, but there are others as well. Ours is the Creating a Family Support Group, and it's on Facebook. Um, and uh, it's a closed group, so there's privacy. Uh, and you won't feel as alone, and I do think that helps. Uh, uh, it may not be enough, but it's sure a step in the right direction. Um, have you also, uh, uh, Jane, found that support groups 
uh, are uh, to help people feel less alone uh, are effective. I think it's the the answer to that is uh, you know uh, <clears throat> many people don't do well in groups because they're so um, embarrassed and and feeling guilty. Um, but other people you know love a group and and perform well in a social situation where misery loves company. And you have to know yourself. So mm-hmm. I, I you know obviously you wouldn't. Anyone who's like loath to join a group, you wouldn't force to join a group. They'll do better in one to one. And anyone who, you know, I, I think that's just very easy to make that determination. We have an email from Sue. She has it's kind of long, so I'm going to summarize. She has adopted a newborn domestically. Uh, the child, the baby, is four months. So they adopted at birth four months ago. She says, I am feeling so very sad over nothing and over everything. I expected to feel such happiness. I have wanted this for so long. I don't know whether this is normal or if I have reached the outer bounds of normal. Uh, any thoughts? I mean, we, we've been talking about the risk factors, and they were primarily associated with uh, stressed families, single families. Sue didn't didn't say that it, it sounds like she may be married. You don't have married. to be stressed, though, Dawn. You, you don't have yeah. to. I mean, she's just yeah. a regular run-of-the-mill lovely person who, you know, um, who clearly articulated the issues very simply and beautifully. And how lucky for her to write the email and for us to be able to just tell her that she's a smart cookie and she's feeling very normal feelings and she needs some support. And she'll do fine probably because she's so reflective of herself. You know, that's yeah. the beauty of it. That is the beauty of it. That's a, such a good point. And, again, you can uh, look for somebody who is knowledgeable about adoption. But in this case, uh, particularly since uh, the infant was or the, the adopted child was an infant, uh, there will be less issues associated with just the adoption and probably more associated, I'm guessing, maybe with just – the, uh, uh, the the realization of what you're doing and and this this may, may this may argue more for a specialist as somebody who is uh, can can treat depression. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I would just say to you that depression can be treated by a generalist. Lots of GPs, family doctors are really really good at supporting and counseling people and being warm and friendly. And we didn't mention medication, but certainly if there's function that's been compromised, you know, uh, the SSRIs or, you know, all the new antidepressants go into effect fairly quickly within a couple of weeks, um, uh, and uh, people get um, a very good effect, um, especially, like I said, especially if there's more than one child and there's function at risk. So I, I, I think, again, we have to look at the, the preponderance of support behaviorally around the country in the United States is through primary care, which might be a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner, uh, a nurse, a general practitioner, family doctors, internists, and as long as they've had good experience treating depression, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, using a generalist. Starting there for sure. As I had uh, just mentioned, Creating a Family uh, has the largest adoption communities on the social network, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect with us at Dawn Davenport One or at Creating a Family, either one. On Facebook, there are three places to connect with us: one, me, which is Dawn Davenport One, and the other one is, or another one is, the Facebook page, Creating a Family Facebook page, and we also have that I just mentioned, the Creating a Family Facebook support group. You can find either of those, the page or the group, at uh, by typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box and and you will be able to find us there 
Are there any warning signs we should know of? Now, we've talked about uh, kind of more generalized uh, depression, but we've also talked about um, the failure to attach to a child, and that can lead, as you uh, pointed out, to some really serious consequences for the child, a cascading series of problems. Um, What are some of the warning signs that that we would want people to be very aware of that if they're feeling this or seeing this in themselves or in their child, they might need to take, that that it's reached the point where they need to take action? Yeah, I think it's the um, uh, perseverative behaviors, you know, sort of obsession. That That means when someone is, uh, you know, uh, ruminating constantly, you know, thinking about how sad they feel. Uh, feeling distant, feeling isolated, irritable. You know, you 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 monitor yourself, and the minute you you see that you're thinking about that all the time, that's your first effort at trying to remove those feelings. That's what people do, um, and you can see it in stress, whether it's financial Explain stress. Explain what you mean there. Explain to me what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying you you you're constantly thinking about the same thing over and over and over again. Gotcha. It's dominating okay. your thoughts. You can't think of anything mm-hmm. else except mm-hmm. how sad or bad you feel, and you're irritable, and you're edgy, and you're sad, and then it affects how you're performing. You know, you're not focused on things properly. You get forgetful, um, and you're not as careful about things. You're not as thoughtful, and that's sort of the beginning of it. And then, you know, you cry a lot. You seem to be very fragile. You can even become sick. Uh, physically, people often who are uh, compartmentalized, people who push things away and and, and don't want to think about things, which is another another way to look at it. So some people ruminate, other people compartmentalize, and then they begin to suffer the ill effects by physical illness. They got repeated colds, sore throats, vomiting, diarrhea, headaches. They become somatized, and um, all of that is 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 a clear picture of someone who's not able to really manage their feelings about something something that's distressing them. And so at that point, hopefully, people around you you know, family members and so forth can actually ask you if you're all right or something's going on. Or you may even have a bad report on your performance at work. But certainly you you always want this to be up front, something that happens uh, pretty soon, and you're able to capture it right away so then you can ask for help. Okay, and we here's an email from Lois. Uh, she adopted two. Say, I, she says I adopted two kids, aged three and five, and I wanted you to know that six months is a good time frame. Uh, I've started off feeling very stressed. I felt like, what have I done? I've. Oh, hang on, let me reread that. She says I felt I had that feeling of what have I done that Dawn talks about. We're one year in, and we're now seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Um, that goes back to uh, thank you, Lois. Uh, that goes back to, uh, Jane, what you talked about, uh, feeling after your second son arrived, that feeling of, oh, my gosh, what have I done? And I, I just will say that uh, from my experience, almost all adoptive parents uh, at some point, particularly if they've adopted a child over the, over infancy, um, has that feeling of at some point, oh, my gracious, what have I done? How did I get myself into this and why did I get myself into this? And that in itself is is not an abnormal, nor even a sign of. It's a sign of, of stress, but it's not necessarily a sign of anything uh, of, of uh, fundamentally wrong with yourself or with your uh, with your adoption. Uh, for you personally, did you see things? Did you was it about the six month time frame that things started? You started feeling less stressed. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he came in um, in June. His anniversary date was last week, June 5th. So, you know, we're lo- looking at the summer was, you know, really a, a very wonderful time for him to get adjusted to life, go off to camp and not be stressed by school. And then and then he entered school in the fall. And by, you know, holiday time, uh, I was already feeling better because he was more socialized and more connected and more comfortable with himself. And um, and I was less stressed because he was more comfortable. So yeah, I think the six months I felt better, and um, and certainly over the years, I think that um, my life wouldn't be as nice as it is without him. He's made my life uh, so beautiful and special, and he's taught me so much. It's you know, I guess it's sort of I guess a little bit um, I don't know, silly in a way to say these things because they're so you know light and breezy, but the the truth is there's a great depth uh, in your life when you adopt an older child who comes from that kind of background. You get such perspective on the world uh, and mm-hmm. watching him close up. You know, I was, I've been taking care of thousands of children, um, you know, of all ages, adjust to institutionalized life all over the um, the world in my work with worldwide orphans, but to personally up front watch someone traverse the the really challenging steps of becoming part of a permanent family uh, is a beautiful experience and was beautiful in all ways. Mm-hmm. It may be light but uh, and breezy, but it is so important to say, I and thank you for saying it. Um, I want to make certain we take some time to talk in this, uh, because this uh, people will be listening to this show for years now. I mean, we uh, all of our shows are podcast and archived. And 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 so it's an evergreen show, as, as we would say. And I, I want to make certain that we spend some time talking about self-care and, and uh, for adoptive parents, yeah. because I think that that mm-hmm. is so important, particularly in the first year after adoption. Um, uh, and, and so I hard wanted, to do. Wanted, yeah. Well, Go I want to just comment on that. I went to a conference on June sixth, all day last week, at Arianna Huffington's house with probably a couple of hundred very eager women and a couple of men here and there with a with a I think an 8-hour program and it was dedicated to what they call the third metric which was okay you have money and power now you know now where do you find meaning in life well of course I don't have money or power which was very it's a funny concept but I think the the, the reason I bring it up is because I think your question is well taken about all of our lives regardless of whether we're adopting or not, I think self-care is so so challenging. You know, we're just we're overwhelmed and stressed in our lives with so much complexity, especially uh, through the Internet, email, and communication, and the lack of connection that's occurring because we're overusing, uh, you know, the electronic form of communication and all the misunderstandings that come from it. So I I would speak to this question Self-care to me is not only trying to eat healthy and sleep, sleep. Arianna Huffington is big on the sleep piece. She has no, she takes no prisoners on this one uh, where people tell her, oh, I only sleep four hours a night. You know, that's a, that's a laugh. That's not real because that's not healthy. So mm-hmm. sleep is incredibly important, eating healthy and also exercising, doing something that's physical so that you enjoy not only the movement of your body, whether it's dance or walking, but you're out in the environment, you're out in the world enjoying nature. I feel that's very important part of self-care. 
and I walk mm-hmm. every weekend. I do a lot of walking even during the week. But And I wouldn't say that I'm you know, an obsessive exercise freak because I'm not. I don't have a membership at a club. But I think you, you can do all of that self-care, and the thing that's the most important part of self-care is intimacy. It's the mm-hmm. most important thing in life, in my opinion, exactly. is to stay con- connected with your friends and family, uh, you ha- and not through Internet. I'm not talking about being uh, texting and emailing and, and you know, connecting that way. I mean talking to people, and I mean listening to people. I mean having conversations with other humans who you care about and who care about you. That's self-care. Yeah, and and the other thing that I I repeat often to uh, uh, when we when we're we're talking, and this is a subject that we talk about a lot uh, at creating a family. And one of the things that I say is schedule something that you will look forward to every week. It may be a coffee date with your partner. It may be uh, going to the movies. You need to do something that is that is nourishing to you, in addition to making certain you get sleep and exercising good food. But something that every week makes you smile and 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 look forward to. That's really important, and it's really it's easy to forget when you're under a huge amount of stress. But it is it is so important. And uh, and we need to do that. Well, we've come to the end of our time, believe it or not. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane Aronson, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion of this topic, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog, and you can jump in on the comment section, and, and we will continue this discussion. To get more information on Dr. Jane Aronson, her practice, or the Worldwide Orphan Foundation, which is a wonderful, wonderful organization, uh, you can go to their website, www.org, uh, worldwideorphans.org, www.org. Uh, and also, again, I cannot encourage you enough to go out. Speaking of taking care of yourself and doing something fun, go out and buy a copy of Carried in Our Hearts, The Gift of Adoption. And uh, you can get it at your local bookstore or, of course, you can get it as with we can always get everything on Amazon. Amazon. Uh, Yes, (laughs) Amazon. Right, exactly. Where would we be without it? Uh, And I would also like to take a moment to thank one more gold sponsor. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at Creating a Family. And that is International, I mean, Independent, listen to me, Independent Adoption Center. They are an adoption agency that specializes in open adoption. They are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. 
which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.